you have a Bible, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I just checked in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it's page 1628. 1628. Now, I said this last week, I'll say it again. Especially this week. This, this passage is uh, one of the most uh, tricky passages in the Apostle Paul's writings to translate, let alone follow where he's going and what he's saying. And you'll see why in a few minutes. This is why I think of any time, if you ever have a Bible in front of you, today would be a good day. Okay? Otherwise, you, you might get lost. So, I encourage you. Open your Bible. Page 1628. Um, and... 1 Corinthians 16, or 6, I mean, sorry. I'm going to be praying to start us off, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for this day again. I just ask that you would help us as we navigate these verses, that you would help me to speak clearly, and, um, Lord, that you would stir our hearts to want to honor you with our bodies, as Paul calls us to, and as you would have. All right, so to start off, I'm not going to dive right into the text. I just want to set the stage for what Paul's going to be talking about. In our context, in the United States, um, turning 18, although more and more it's becoming 21 because we're becoming less and less mature, but turning 18 is a rite of passage in a lot of ways into most of the perks, or not, of adulthood. Not only do you graduate from high school, just unless you're like super motivated and you're 17, uh, but for many, you graduate and you move off on your own to college, leaving behind everyone with influence in your life and wisdom, right? And you throw you into a big room with a bunch of peers, and that's a great idea, right? Um, but not always that extreme, but basically, when you turn 18, a lot of times, the ties are cut from home. I went to Chicago when I was 18 and lived there for four years on the floor with 29 other guys. And uh, mostly a good experience, but, you know, uh, even though they were Christian guys, Christians are sinners, right? And there was a lot of good and not so good influences. But 18 is kind of that time you go off. You can sign contracts when you're 18. You can vote. You can buy property, buy a house if you're really ahead of the game. Uh, you can purchase a car, or your parents can purchase it for you, right? Or firearms. You can start to establish credit and get your first credit card and start racking up the American debt. You can legally join also in some places in our nation's nightlife and give consent to sex in all 50 states. In the ancient Roman Empire and in Corinth, the city where the church Paul is writing his letter lived, a similar list of things happened when a young man turned into an adult, usually at the age of 16. So they had their similar passage into adulthood. When a boy turned 16... There was a big ceremony held in his honor. Not usually for a servant or a slave, but for somebody in the middle to upper class. And he was given a new garment to wear. 
a special type of white toga called a toga virilis. So you got your special outfit. Imagine if we gave 18 year olds a special outfit so everybody knows they were 18, right? No, we don't do that, but we have other things we do. From that day forward in Rome, this young man could leave his home and pursue a higher education in philosophy. He could vote. He could go to the Roman baths and to the temples. And finally, he could participate in the legendary adult scene of Corinth. It's central to the adult life of the Roman upper class and social elite were these big banquets that were essentially drunken orgies for men, and in particular, young, unmarried men. As a young adult sporting your fresh new toga, it was fully expected that you would go to these adult parties, especially if you had any hope of climbing the social ladder and scoring a successful career one day. These parties were ways that you could impress Friends, make new friends, connect with the power brokers of the day. And you were, you would, here's basically what you do. You lay on your side on couches. They ate on couches. How luxurious, right? And you would, it sounds like Harper recipe to me, but um, anyhow, you would, lay on, you would lay on these couches and you would eat as much as you possibly could eat. And it was good food too. Saw some of the lists of the ancient food. I mean, they didn't have ice cream, but they had something similar. You would just eat everything tasty that you could possibly cram in. Then you'd go down the hall to a special room called the vomitorium. You'd tickle your throat with a feather. You'd throw up everything you just ate. You'd go back, and you'd do it again. And you'd drink and drink and drink as much as you possibly could until you were drunk out of your mind. And then you'd keep drinking. Or you'd go vomit and drink. I mean, literally over and over again. These parties, some of them will last for days. And throughout the whole time, any host worth his salt would provide or hire a team of ladies to come in and join in the party and mill about and do their work. Not in private rooms off to the side, but all in broad daylight with the group as a part of the party. The goal of these events, these parties, were to squeeze as much physical pleasure as possible into one event at the same time. It was hedonism, completely unhinged. And it was as common in this culture as movie night with your friends. Tragically, Christians in Corinth, and in particular young men, were getting caught up into this scene. And there was incredible pressure for them to do so. If they didn't, if, what happens if somebody invites you over to their house and you say no? And they say, oh, why? Have I got something else going on? No, thanks. No, I'm not going to go because uh, I don't agree with what you're doing. So, whoa! Loss of status, right? And maybe that friendship. Maybe a job prospect. Prospect. So for young men, turning down these party in, in, invites, or for anyone, was, was hard. And so, as we read about the culture in Corinth, through ancient documents that we have available to us, 
it seems likely that the Christians were justifying their attendance at these parties because they were necessary and they had lies that they were using. Lies they were telling themselves to justify going to these parties. Okay, Lies that they were saying to themselves in the form of slogans. Slogans that basically just said, Christians can do this. It's not wrong. And Paul is going to address these slogans that they were saying, these lies. There's three of them. And I'll highlight each slogan as we read through the text. Now, as I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, I want you to, when, when we get to verse 18... I'm, I'm actually going to quote from a different translation called the Net Bible, okay, the New English Translation. And I'll explain this a little more later. But verse 18 doesn't show up as a Corinthian slogan, as something they were saying with quotation marks in most of your um, translations. But I think it's actually another Corinthian slogan. See, there's no quotation marks in Greek. The Corinthians would have known what their own slogans were as they were reading Paul's letter. They would say, oh yeah, he's quoting what I said. But we don't know what they said and what Paul said. We just know what Paul's writing. It's like listening. You ever tried to listen to one side of a phone conversation? You can figure out a lot of what the other person's saying by the responses. So here, we're trying to figure out what are they saying and what's Paul saying. Some of the things that Paul says here, and Paul writes here, sound so much not like Paul that that's what they said. And here's his words responding to it. So three times. Most translations say it's just twice. The Net Bible, and I think they're correct. And I think hopefully by the end of today you'll see why. In verse 18, it's actually going to be another quotation mark. Another slogan that they have. So there's three slogans. I'm calling them their three lies. So let's read together, and I'll, I'll highlight them as we go. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to, 12 to 20. Here's slogan 1. I have the right to do anything, you say, but, Paul responds, not everything is beneficial. Then he says slogan 1 again. I have the right to do anything. I can do whatever I want. But Paul responds, I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 13, you say, here's slogan 2, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. It's basically a party slogan, justifying everything that goes on at these parties. Not just picking out on food, but, you know, a justification for hedonism. And here's Paul's response. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Now here's slogan three. You say every sin a person commits is outside the body. 
Now, all your translations are going to say, you say, probably, you say every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual sin is special. It's different because when you sin sexually, you sin against the body. But the word other is not actually in the Greek. It's the translators trying to figure out how to interpret what's actually kind of a tricky verse to understand. I think that the problem with understanding what's going on is solved by seeing this, and it's not just me, a growing number of commentators are um, arguing this way. Commentators being Bible teachers who write commentaries about the Bible, helping us wrestle through things like this. Um, this is another slogan. The Corinthians are saying, every sin a person commits is outside the body. And Paul responds, but the immoral person sins against his own body. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So we're going to work through this passage in four steps. We're going to examine each of these three slogans. I'm going to call them lies. And then we'll look at Paul's response to each one. And finally, we'll look at the overarching truth that Paul wants the Corinthians to know. So lie number one is summarized this way. True, if you're taking notes, here's, here's lie number one. True freedom means I can do whatever I want with my body. My body, my choice. Lie number two. Every bodily appetite ought to be satisfied. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. And that includes everything. You got an urge, there's something to meet that urge. Lie number three. Sin with my body doesn't affect me or my body. Every sin is outside the body. Sin doesn't affect my body. It's just what my body does. My soul's okay. And Paul counters that with the truth, the overarching truth. Your body belongs to the Lord, and he has freed you to honor him with your body. So here's the main idea of everything. If you get nothing else from today, right, what you do with your body, what you do with the body that you have matters because it's not yours. Ultimately, it belongs to the Lord. So let's jump right in. Point one, true freedom means I can do whatever I want. Listen to Paul's summary of the Corinthians' first slogan. The first lie they've, brought, they've bought into, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, I have the right to do anything, you say. Now the NIV adds you say, to try to, as, as well as the quotation marks, to try to make you see this is what they're saying. But not everything is beneficial. You say, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul responds. Here, here you can almost picture a young man in the church, newly togged, and he's saying, Paul, I have the right to do anything now. I'm an adult. It's possible, possible that Paul's own teachings about Christian freedom from the law of Moses is getting twisted here, and his words being thrown back at him. You know, we're free from the law, Paul. Remember, you said that, so I can do whatever I want. And Paul, of course, in other places says, no, we're under the law of Christ. Law of love. Love for God, love for neighbor, which includes love for the body God has given us. This is hedonism unhinged. I have the right to do anything. I'm free. And Paul, interestingly, notice this, Paul doesn't jump right to his ultimate answer. 
to this slogan, which can be found in verses 19 to 20. If ever you're arguing with somebody, you're trying to argue for something, sometimes you start with your lesser arguments and you work, you work your way up to the real zinger at the end. Okay? You don't start with your zinger and then kind of back down. That's just not good arguing etiquette or whatever. You know, people will forget the real zinger by the time you come to your least one in your life. But if you end on your weakest argument, you're like, that's the last taste that's left in their mouth. And they walk out the door like, really? Paul starts with a lesser argument. Okay? Watch this. He says, um, I have the right to do anything. But not everything is good for you or for others. Not everything's beneficial, your translation might say. You say, I have the right to do anything. But then he says something about his own life. I will not be mastered by anything. See, if you think that true freedom is simply doing whatever you want, you're actually not free. You're a slave to your wants, to your pleasures. As Paul writes to the Roman church, dealing with many similar issues in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, sin shall no longer have mastery over you. Sin has become your master if you say, I can do whatever sin my body wants. You're following the master of your lusts. So that's the first slogan in Paul's responses. But he's building. Those aren't his strongest arguments. Before we dive into this more, okay, Paul's strongest arguments, but before we get to Paul's strongest arguments, let's look at the second slogan here, verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So this is lie number two. Every, every bodily appetite ought to be satisfied because it doesn't matter in the end what you do with your body. Food, the, food for the stomach and the stomach for food is a way of saying if you have a craving for something, it is right to satisfy that craving. You want food? Well, we have food for you. This is basically... This, this is why... Commentators think that this is the party scene that's involved here. This is like a party slogan. And it includes um, everything else that would go on at that party. The drinking and the unhinged giving in, the sexual cravings. The stomach, so come to the party. The food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food. Meaning everything... You have an urge for, there's something we have at the party to satisfy it. Though they could also, it includes the idea you have sexual organs, they're for sex. You have sex, that's what sexual organs are for. And at the end of the day, the second half of the slogan goes God will destroy both food and your stomach. So, in conclusion, enjoy it while you can. Now, what is driving this way of thinking when we read the ancient sources that we have available to us about Rome, and you can read some of the ancient philosophers like Plato, this is Platonic dualism that showed up at church. What do I mean? Now, I do not have time to give a lecture on Plato's cave and the all that goes into that philosophy. Okay? Basically, 
to just make it very simple, what did Plato say? He said he, he believed in a strong dichotomy between the body and the soul. The physical body exists only to be destroyed. The spirit lives on. So what you do with your body is not as significant as what you do with your soul. There's a soul and a body, and the soul is like trapped in the body. Okay? You could go on, but listen to Paul's response to this way of thinking about the body. Listen to what he says in verses 13 and 17. He basically responds by saying, what you do with your body does matter, and God won't just destroy it. So Plato's thinking, you know, the body's just expendable. It's the spirit that lives on. Food for the body, the body for food. Fill it up, because in the end, it's just going to go away. Who cares about the body? The soul's good. All right? Paul says no. Look what he says. Why does the body matter? God won't just destroy it. He will raise it. Listen to Paul's words. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So he starts by saying, your body exists for God. It matters. And it has a future. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Your body is not just a napkin that you can use to wipe up all the grease of the world's pleasures and then just throw it out and discard it because your spirit's going to live on. No, your body will be raised. And verse 15, he says, do you, know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So this is another concept he's interested in here. Christians, he says, are connected to Jesus so closely that he is like our head in heaven and we are like his body on earth. Together we, as Christians, are a new humanity that God is creating by his spirit. And like our head has been resurrected, so we will be too. Paul then asks and says, shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So basically, Paul says, Christian, you are connected to Jesus. Your physical body, as it connects together with other Christians, is Jesus' spirit-filled body on earth. You are the hands and feet of Jesus on earth. You are his witnesses. You are his mouth on earth. You speak for him on earth. You love for him on earth. You spread his word on earth. Your feet go to bring the good news of the gospel on earth. We are his body on earth, even as he is in heaven. When his body visits a prostitute on earth, it's saying that Jesus himself is connected to that act, which is not only a lie, it's blasphemy against Jesus. It's saying our resurrected head would do this if he's on earth. And all that goes with it at these parties. And Paul goes to another line of attack. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Here he's basically saying when you hook up with these ladies, you're not just engaging in casual sex. There's no such thing as casual sex in Paul's mind. And he quotes Genesis 2, 24 to explain that when these men 
do this. They're becoming united as one flesh with the prostitute. They're cleaving to her as a wife, though she's not their wife. Sexual immorality here, plain and simple, and it's not okay. Verse 18, he tells them they must flee it. But first, he says, verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Paul is building towards his final conclusion here. He says, just as marriage is intended to unite husband and wife in one flesh union, and what the Corinthians are doing is perverting that, so our union with the Lord Jesus through faith makes us one with him by his spirit. His spirit in us, uniting us to him, makes the true believer one with him in a husband-wife type relationship that physical relations between a husband and wife is only a shadow of. Jesus is the husband of his bride and church in the Bible. And so because of Jesus, Paul says, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Run from these parties, basically, or anything else that would tempt you to sin with your body. Now, let's look at slogan three. Lie number three. Sin with my body doesn't affect me or my body. Here we run into that translation issue I mentioned earlier. Most of your translations probably read something like this for the second half of verse 18. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So if your translation says something like that, it's a good attempt. Translators are stumped here, okay? I'm not saying translations did bad here, it's just... It's a tricky passage to try to interpret what is going on. When are the Corinthians talking and when's Paul talking? It's, it's not easy. So, so we've tried a lot. But the more we learn about the background of Corinth, the more scrolls we dig up in the deserts, okay, and the more we finally get access to these things, the more we are starting to learn some of the background to what was going on in Corinth, and we're able to listen a little bit to what the other side of that phone conversation was. And so, more and more, commentators are thinking that this is actually another slogan here. And I think they're dead right, because I think the same platonic thinking, a dichotomy between what I do with my body and how it affects my soul, is showing up right in this verse. And it actually allows you to translate it without adding the word other to try to make sense of things. All right? So, basically, Paul is saying, or the Corinthian slogan is, all sin, or every sin, that a person commits is outside the body. That's the slogan. Paul responds by saying, yeah, but if you sin sexually, you're sinning against the body. For many years, when, when the translations have read the other way, it's made sexual sin sound like it's somehow a unique sin against your body. You see how it reads that way? Like, every other sin is outside the body. Drunkenness is outside the body. Um, you know, just... Trying to think. Stealing is outside the body. Murder is outside the body. Um, adultery is somehow now, and, and sexual sin is against your body. That, that doesn't really make 
sense if you really think about it. So it's led to whole books being written trying to figure out what's unique about this one sin. To call it an other sin. Every other sin except this one. The word other is not there. And I, I think, I mean, think about other sins against the body. Gluttony hurts the body. How's that not a sin against the body? Drunkenness hurts the body. How's that not a sin? Suicide hurts the body. How's that not a sin against the body? We could just go on down the list. But if this is another Corinthian slogan, it reads like this again. You say every sin a person commits is outside the body. But, Paul talks about the sin that he's talking about in context. The sexual and moral person sins against his own body. So you're saying this immoral sex and all that's going with it, the the food consumption, gluttony, binging at these parties, you're saying it's okay. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, God will destroy them both, which includes all the other stuff at these parties, because it's outside the body. But, and he singles out the sexual sin, it's against your body. Sexual immorality affects your body. Basically, what, what Paul is pushing back against here is the idea that I can do whatever I want with my body. I can put my body wherever I want. I can stuff whatever I want into it. Okay? I can go wherever I want with it. And it doesn't affect my soul. Because every sin's outside the body. But the soul lives on. Paul says no. No. Because when you sin with the body, you are sinning against the body. Now, think about it a minute. Paul anticipates an objection here, and he's going to answer it. How, you can almost hear this newly toga Corinthian boy say, wait a minute, how can I sin against my body? Doesn't my body belong to me? I mean, my body, my choice, right? Think about it. If someone breaks into my house, it's a crime. But if I'm on vacation and I suddenly remember I left the stove on and I call up Richard and I ask Richard, I give him permission to break into my house and turn off the stove, it's not a crime. I, you know, neighbors might call the police because it looks like breaking and entering, but it's not a crime if I gave him permission. My house, my choice. I gave him permission to break in. I gave him to pr- permission to touch my house in a way that... Um, would be forbidden unless I had given permission. The Corinthians thought the same way about the body. The body is their house. Their eternal spirit lives in the house, and they could do whatever they wanted with their soul's house. They could sell it. They could fill it full of booze and food. They could connect it to hundreds of other bodies. Their house, their choice. So what do you mean sin, sexual sin is sin against the body? What what do you mean? And here Paul answers. My body, my choice? My house, my choice? No. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. 
not your house. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul is answering this possible objection to sin with the body is actually sin against the body by saying, how can you sin against your own body if it's yours and you can do whatever you want with it? And he says, it's because it's not yours. It's God's. He owns it. It's God's body. And what's more, it's God's house. It's a temple for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is in true believers. Therefore, when you sin with your body, you sin against God. This is the overarching truth that Paul wants believers to know. It's everything he's been building up to. It's his zinger at the very end. It's the final argument, and it's point four this morning. Your body belongs to the Lord, and he has freed you to honor him with it. I'll read those verses again. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the grand idea, the grand summary of everything Paul said so far. It's the main idea of this sermon. What you do with your body matters because your body, your physical body, belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His by creation. We are His by redemption. And we are His by habitation. In other words, Jesus owns you because He made all the elements in the periodic table. He made all the matter in the universe. He made you. And He planned your existence. Jesus owns you because He's redeemed you with His blood. He's bought your body back from slavery to sin and to the devil with a price. As Paul said earlier, we have Jesus as a master. We're not to be mastered by anything in creation. We've been freed. And the price was Jesus' own body given on the cross to take the punishment for my failure to honor God and yours. He owns us by redemption. So Jesus made us. And he bought us, and finally he owns us as his habitation. He has come to reside with us, and even in us, by his Holy Spirit. The conclusion to all this, at the very end of verse 20, is that because our bodies belong to Jesus, we must honor God with our bodies. So, everything can be concluded with the words, what you do with your body matters, because it belongs to the Lord. So here's a few words of application now. First, what you do to your body matters to God. So Christian, if you trust Jesus, your body is a gift to you from God to use and to enjoy with God for the honor of God. It's falling apart, yes, and one day it will turn to dust. Some of you may feel that more than others. It's inevitable. Cut off from the tree of life, symbolizing God's life-giving presence in the garden, humans will die. Just like the trees and the grass dies. Just like the mightiest lion and the tiniest bug will die. We also turn to dust. The strongest, fastest, healthiest person you know today will be dirt in a hundred years. Literally. 
unless Jesus returns. That's humbling. About all those Olympic people doing amazing things with their bodies. Oh my word. And yet the sobering reality is we will return to dirt. We ought to hold our health with open and grateful hands. It is a temporary and fleeting gift. But in the meantime, we are stewards of our bodies. We don't worship our bodies. We'll talk about that in a minute. We care for them as God would have us. They have been given to us to use by the Lord for his honor. Sadly, there has been a trend in many Christian circles to neglect our bodies because we say, ah, just going to get resurrected one day. Who cares about this old shell? In fact, many pastors and missionaries and Christian leaders have set terrible examples in this area. Overworking our bodies, not getting enough sleep or exercise, overeating because of stress or discouragement. And I know this temptation well. But our bodies matter to God because they belong to God. They are indwelled by God's Spirit. And one day they will be raised by God. As Christians, God calls us to use wisdom to take care of our bodies to the degree we are able until we reach the point where we need others to take care of our bodies the best that they are able until the day we die and we wait for the living God to take perfectly good care of our bodies in resurrection life. So that's the first thing. What you do to your body matters to God. Second, what you do with your body matters to God. Jacob Cook, he's not in here. He drives a Spectrum van. What Jacob does with that van matters to Spectrum very much, right? What you and I do with our bodies matter to God because our bodies belong to God. He made us. Where we go matters to God. What we touch matters to God. What we look at matters to God. What we say matters to God. Everything we do with our body is either displaying God's wisdom and his plan for how humans ought to use their body, or it's not. And in this context, in 1 Corinthians 6, sexual immorality is the primary focus. When our bodies face sexual temptation. To touch other human bodies in ways that dishonor God. Whether touching with our eyes through pornography, or our hands, or our words. Jesus calls us to flee. Remember who owns your body. And remember who owns the bodies of those you are tempted to use for your own pleasure. They are not yours. They are God's. The third application this morning is that we are called to live for the honor of God. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he's going to circle back to some of these things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says the same slogan over again. That's one of the reasons we know that's a slogan. Is, um, he says, you know, all things, I can do anything I want, basically. 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says it again in response. Yeah, but everything you do might not be loving to your neighbor. That's what he goes there. It's another one of his arguments. They were getting a lot of mileage with this quote. But anyhow, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all to put the worth 
and the value and the character of God on display through you in this world. Live for the honor of God. Live so that the fruit of the Spirit of God might be evident in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is God's great aim for your body. God's aim, his goal, his purpose for my body and your body is for the spirit of the living God to create the character of the new man, Jesus, who is all that Adam should have been and failed in his people. We are being renewed after the image of our creator. Finally, I'd with this. There are two extremes that humans can fall into when it comes to how we treat our bodies. First, I think we as humans, we can begin to develop an idolatrous love and fixation on our body. We can enthrone the human body in our hearts, and it consumes us. This can take two different forms. Either we worship how our body looks, or how we want it to look, and we constantly sacrifice physical pleasures for a perfect, to achieve that perfect image of the body. Or, we worship how our body feels, and we give in to its every impulse for food and drink and sex, like it's our master, sacrificing even physical, spiritual, emotional, and relational health on the altar of drunkenness, greed, gluttony, and lust. The opposite, though, of worship, extreme worship of the body, is hatred of the body. We deny our body the food it needs. We punish our body. We shame our bodies. Often, we can flip-flop, though, between these two extremes. When one fails, we punish ourselves by turning to the other. But as Christians, we're called to walk the line between these two extremes. We're called not to worship our bodies or to despise our bodies because they're not the image that we want them to be. Love our bodies because our Creator loves our bodies and our souls. Jesus died for the resurrection of your body. Jesus is devoted to the eternal well being of your physical body. And our bodies are the eternal dwelling place of the Spirit of God Himself. So, a proper confidence as Christians. A proper way of viewing our bodies must always start with a confidence not in who we are or what we look like or would like to look like, but in whose we are and in what we were made for. We were made for him. We belong to him. We are his by creation. We are his by redemption. Jesus died to raise your body one day with his. That's the, the resurrection of the body is part of the good news of the gospel. What is your only hope in life and death, Christian? And the catechism answers that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for the hope that you give us 
about our bodies. Lord, I thank you that you did not despise human bodies, but you became a human with body. You became an embodied soul. And you have kept your body for eternity. The hand at the throne of God ruling the universe have scars. That is amazing to us. It's amazing to me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would awaken in each person here an amazement at the beauty of the new man, Jesus, and a hunger and longing to be like him in every way, to use our bodies for his honor. I pray all these things.